Have you ever been involved in an incident of sexual harassment, abuse, or assault? Before you answer, I should clarify that when I say involved, I'm not only talking about being a perpetrator or a victim. I'm talking about bystanders as well. And I'm not only talking about overt acts. I'm referring to an overall culture in which certain individuals are singled out and demoralized, degraded, and or sexualized on the basis of sex, assumed sex, or gender. So to answer my own question, I'll tell you that the belief I acquired as I was conducting these interviews is that sexual harassment is an overwhelming and pervasive problem in the American workplace. And because of that, many of us have been involved and possibly even implicated in sexual harassment, discrimination, abuse, and assault. I'm Darylise Lyons, a sexual abuse survivor. Although my abuse did not occur at work, I've experienced the ramifications of unwanted and inappropriate sexualization. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank Indigenous people past, present, and future for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is episode three of season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. And this episode is entitled Hashtag Me Too, How Pervasive and Permissive Power Dynamics Create Cultures of Harassment and Abuse. Did you know that 81% of women and 43% of men have been sexually harassed in their lifetime? Or that 38% of women have been harassed at work? What about the fact that 78% of trans and or non-binary individuals have been harassed in their lifetime, with a staggering 47% of trans and non-binary adults having experienced sexual assault at some point? Workplace-specific statistics for trans and non-binary folks aren't readily available because of a lack of gender-expansive research, but it stands to reason that those whose gender identities or assumed gender identities are marginalized would be more likely to be targeted both in and out of the workplace. And if you're thinking, yeah, but the Me Too movement changed that, think again. One of the problems of the Me Too movement and of the law in general is we tend to focus on bad apples, right? Like, oh, we got this guy. We've eliminated him. We fired him. And that's what happened as a result of the Me Too movement, right? It was lots of men in power lost their positions, right? Lost their jobs. That didn't eliminate sexual harassment because the truth is if you have a wound, let's say a splinter, right? You have a splinter that got infected and all you did is take the splinter out. The wound is still infected. You have to disinfect the wound in order for it to heal. And so just eliminating that person is not healing the situation. It's a workplace culture problem. And it's really a problem of enablers more than just a problem of the bad apple. 
That was Leora Eisenstadt, an associate professor in the Department of Legal Studies at the Fox School of Business at Temple University, a Murray Shusterman Research Fellow, and the director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. Leora is also an assistant producer and consultant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. As she pointed out, eradicating sexual harassment requires more than getting rid of quote-unquote bad apples. We need to dig up toxic trees from their roots and plant new ones. To backtrack and contextualize this point for a moment, the Me Too movement technically began in 2006 when social activist Tarana Burke set out to empower survivors of sexual abuse by raising awareness and fostering empathy through survivor solidarity. But hashtag MeToo didn't garner international attention until 2017 after actor Alyssa Milano's viral tweet sparked a worldwide movement. Within a year, there were upwards of 19 million tweets containing the hashtag MeToo. And the MeToo movement put sexual assault and harassment at the forefront of the conversation in the United States and beyond. MeToo garnered international attention and had and continues to have an everlasting impact on cultural understandings of sexual abuse. It highlighted the pervasive nature of sexual abuse and brought millions of stories out of the shadows into the light. But in the wake of the increased visibility around sexual violence and assault came a great deal of victim vilification. Many outspoken survivors and advocates were demonized or discredited, and many of those who came forward experienced harassment and retaliation. Additionally, as Leora pointed out, the Me Too movement was limited in terms of its impact. Many abusers were fired, but the cultures that enabled that abuse weren't often revamped to prevent further instances of abuse or misconduct. That's because even after Me Too, there remains a widespread cultural misunderstanding about the power dynamics that contribute to rampant sexual abuse and misconduct that spans industries and generations. When I talk about sexual harassment, I really talk about it as it's an issue of power. And harassment is the tool that people in power use to keep those below them down. And so... The reason we care about it as more than just a interpersonal conflict, the reason we care about it as a society is because it is used to keep an entire class of people down. Historically, societal power dynamics have subjugated anyone that isn't a cis male. Knowing that, it's not surprising that 81% of women and 78% of trans and or non-binary individuals have experienced sexual violence, harassment, or assault. The more we understand that gender-based violence and discrimination are both caused by and cause toxic cultural dynamics— the more we can become empowered to create respectful, harassment-free workplace environments— I spoke with Armando X. Estrada, who everyone calls Axe, an associate professor in the Department of Policy, Organizational, and Leadership Studies at Temple University. Prior to his current position, Axe served as a program manager and senior research psychologist with the Foundational Science Research Unit of the United States Army Research Institute for the Behavioral and Social Sciences. 
Before that, he served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 1987 to 1995, and he continues to be actively involved in the Society for Military Psychology. Harassment, prejudice, and discrimination is a byproduct of a context that tolerates those behaviors, right? So when you have an instance of harassment, you can't just look at it as an isolated event. You have to look at the organizational context in which that event happened, right? Because there are individuals who saw things happen, allowed for things to happen, maybe even participated and encouraged things to happen in a particular way. And that's all about the culture and the climate of an organization, right? So people engage in behaviors that are tolerated, that are promoted or encouraged within an organizational context. And this includes not just good behaviors like performance, but also bad behaviors like harassment, prejudice, and discrimination, right? So I think you have to look at the culture and the climate of that culture to understand any behavior, especially things like harassment, prejudice, and discrimination. So when you're having issues involving mistreatment at work, it's not enough to look at the problematic behaviors or the individuals involved. You have to look at the broader organizational culture and ask, what is it about the organization that is creating conditions to facilitate this kind of behavior? And then think about what policies and what interventions make sense to begin to change the tide on those, right? So that, that's one broad set of questions. The other important part is leaders. Leaders set the tone and the vision for what is done in an organization. So you have to ask, what are the leaders doing to either promote or encourage good or bad behavior? And what do we need to do to develop the leaders to be able to properly identify and respond to not only good behavior, but also bad behavior? And then in terms of the organization, what policies and procedures do we need to have in place to hold people accountable and enforce behavior that is commensurate with the organization and its values, but also the the success of the organization as a whole. Axe is right. As I've already shared, the Me Too movement illuminated the rampant sexual abuse in workplaces across industries. But organizations and the individuals that comprise them have failed to appropriately respond to the large-scale outcry of sexual abuse survivors. What society needs to do is to take an honest look at the culture problem at the core of our sexual harassment problem. But instead, we've taken an individualistic, case-by-case outlook that isn't at all expansive enough. Yes, individuals with power have been exercising that power to perpetrate sexual abuse. But what about everyone else? Everyone who knew and did nothing to intervene? In order to convey some of the ways in which sexual harassment and sexual assault are rooted in systemic problems and societally enabled and or reinforced, I'd like to share a few stories that were shared with me. Very shortly after I got into the corporate world, my manager started basically pressuring me to have sex with him. And that kind of shaped my entire career. That was Stephanie Voigt, a sexual assault and post-traumatic stress support counselor, yoga and meditation teacher, survivor, writer, and advocate for survivors of sexual violence and abuse. 
Stephanie began her career in the finance industry in her early 20s, only to find herself on the receiving end of unwanted advances and coerced sex. And while you might be tempted to think the manager who coerced her into having sex with him was a quote-unquote bad apple, and yes, he absolutely was that, again, it's important to remember that bad apples are the fruit of toxic, power-poisoned trees. So I was about 22 at that time, and the trajectory of my career from that moment forward was, well, I was just plagued by sexual harassment for a decade in the finance industry. Something that I mostly tried to not pay attention to because I was the breadwinner in my house. So I saw myself as the person who needed to make the money. And I kind of just kept my head down and lived two lives, basically just kind of ignored what was happening and kept moving forward. And I went through a few different jobs and the sexual harassment just continued through all of them, different firms, different managers, everything. I reached a point where I was looking in the mirror and I just had no idea who I was. I'm like, who is this person? What are you doing this for? What, why are you getting ready for this job? Do you even like this job? Who are you at this job? Do you know yourself at all? Like When you become so disconnected from your feelings and ignore that experience, you just you lose yourself completely. Stephanie's experiences demonstrate the impact of sexual abuse and harassment in the workplace, and they demonstrate how these issues almost always require the participation or non-participation of a number of individuals, including those we might be tempted to see as, quote-unquote, innocent. The finance industry is very male-dominated, and I was there from 2008 to 2018. So most of that was pre-Me Too. I could speak to it for about a year post-Me Too, but that's not it. From the minute I got there, I came straight from college. And the language, the, the way people talked about women, it was worse than a frat house basement. Like frat house basement, late at night, all kinds of bad things happen. But this was my professional life. I mean, just crude comments that the men would speak about women's bodies. They would rank them on a scale of how many beers it would take them to sleep with them. It was just so normal too, which was the scary part. And, and, you know, I've actually spoke to some of my male coworkers years later about this, and they actually say that they were uncomfortable by those, like those comments made them uncomfortable. According to whattobecome.com, 35% of men and 36% of women surveyed identified workplace sexual harassment as a problem. That means that even though female-identified employees are approximately three times more likely to experience sexual harassment than their male counterparts, there are many men who recognize the harmful ramifications of what Stephanie described as frat house basement culture. And speaking of harms perpetrated in college environments that are also workplace environments, Elizabeth Liz Taylor told me about her experience being harassed while teaching at a university. Liz's harassment occurred at the University of Tennessee. 
She is currently an assistant professor in the Sport and Recreation Management Department at Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, and her work examines gender discrimination, homophobia, sexual harassment, and assault within the athletic industry. When I was a PhD student at the University of Tennessee, students at Tennessee, PhD students at Tennessee are very lucky. They get to teach their own courses. And so in my second semester of teaching a course, I had a student who continually sexually harassed me throughout the semester. And it started out as emails. He emailed me inviting me to a frat party and emailed me, you know, asking where do I go out on the weekend and things that I just deleted. I didn't really address. I I guess I, I wrote it off a little bit as like boys will be boys and college students are still learning and exploring and growing. And one day I walked into to class and, and I very vividly remember it was a warmer day. Knoxville's ungodly hot when it passes like December. And so it was a warmer day in the spring and I came to class and I was wearing this professional dress from J. Crew with a cardigan over it. Um, and he cat call whistled at me when I walked into the classroom and I remember I froze and I had, you know, 0.2 seconds to decide what to do. And I decided just to ignore it. And I moved forward with the lecture and I immediately went to my advisor and I told him what happened. And we kind of talked through some potential outcomes of of what could happen. And and I said, you know, for the minute, I want to leave it. I'm hopeful that it won't happen again, but I just, for now, I want to, I want to leave it and maybe address it more toward the end of the semester. And a couple of weeks later, one of the few women students in the class, so there were probably about 30 students in the class, at least 25 of them were men. So one of the only women students in the class came to me and she said, you know, I just want you to know the things that he's saying about you before you get to the classroom. And they're really making me uncomfortable. And so I went back to my advisor and I said, this is now the situation and something needs to be done about this. And so we addressed the situation and decisions were made and and consequences were given and that sort of thing. But from the experience, that's how I got started in this line of research. I started talking to other women faculty about their experiences and found out that many women. So the first study that I did, I talked to 10 women and nine of them had experienced something like I had experienced even I don't want to say worse because I, I think that all experiences are, are very traumatic and harmful, but, you know, more serious types of harassment and physical intimidation and threats and that sort of thing. Liz mentioned that in her sample study of 10 women, nine of them had experienced sexual harassment. I'm not sure of the scope and duration of the harassment these women experienced, but I can tell you that there is almost always a progressive and escalating nature to abuse, which is why as long as it remains unchecked, harassment gets worse, never better. Over time and in the absence of negative consequences, harassers become more emboldened. Luckily, in Liz's case, a bystander spoke up. But many who witness abuse, harassment, or discrimination stay silent. In doing so, workplace cultures become more toxic and harassers become more aggressive. For instance, the harassment Liz experienced began as emails and escalated to catcall whistling and sexual comments made about her to other students. Having said that, I'm not suggesting that we look at certain forms of abuse as less egregious. In and of itself, online harassment can do, and often does, 
serious harm to those who are targeted. For instance, Anna Velasquez, public relations and online harassment coordinator for Right to Be, is a journalist and communication specialist who is passionate about increasing public awareness about social issues and creating healthier digital ecosystems. Prior to coming to work for Right to Be, Anna worked as a tech journalist in Colombia and experienced ongoing online sexual harassment. And I should tell you that her experiences are by no means out of the ordinary. According to the journalist's resource, sexual harassment of women journalists is rampant. In fact, 73 of 75 women surveyed, so 97%, had experienced various forms of online harassment, spanning the gamut from sexist remarks to threats of rape. I had experiences of online harassment while I was doing my job as a journalist. Thankfully, I never received death threats or rape threats as many journalists receive in their daily daily basis work. So in my case, I did receive a lot of misogynist comments. I used to cover technology, so I had to read comments of people saying, oh, like, why are you talking about that? You're a woman. You shouldn't be talking about technology. You You don't know about these topics. Or people who were commenting about my appearance so yeah, I, I did receive those kind of comments all the time and it really impacted my work and my my health, like my mental health. It was really stressful for me. So at some point I didn't read anything. I didn't read like the comments. So like in the articles, you have the option of for like people to comment at the end of the article. So I never read those comments. If my videos or my content was shared on the newspaper, social media, I never read that uh, because I knew that I was going to receive those hateful messages that will really impact my work and my well-being. The harassment people experience at work or in the course of doing their work negatively impacts their well-being in ways that have ramifications both on the job and outside of work. Likewise, out-of-work harassment can also adversely impact a person's ability to function in their jobs. Sylvia Massiero told me that she has experienced gender-based discrimination at work, and she also had a personal experience of abuse that impacted and continues to impact her work. Sylvia is an associate professor of information systems at the University of Oslo and the author of more than 20 peer-reviewed works in the domain of information and communication technology for development, also known as ICT4D. She is a co-editor of the open access work, COVID-19 from the Margins, Pandemic Invisibilities, Policies, and Resistance in the Datafied Society. I wish that my story was a story of inclusion in the workplace and in the information systems community, but it's been a story of battles. And there is a personal story, too, in which we might get later in the podcast. Indeed. Later on in our interview, I asked Sylvia if she'd be willing to share the personal story she'd referred to at the beginning of our conversation. I'm very willing to speak about that, Daralise. I've been silent for so long that, <laughs> frankly, I'm very, very willing to, even though I must say, when I say so long, that my story 
I lived a 15-month story of domestic violence, not a story of ERs, marriages, and perhaps children, as many of the brave women that I work with in my volunteering. So let's see things in dimension. But I'm very willing to speak about it because I was one of the silenced ones, and many of us are silenced. It's not a happy story, but unfortunately, when I was 31, sadly, sadly I survived an abusive relationship that heavily impacted my life and work. I should make a short parenthesis here and say, when we enter an abusive relationship, it's not like there is written, oh, it's abusive. I think many of us have a similar story in a way. And I think one day we were sort of joking on it with other volunteers because we're all the same. Oh, but he wasn't abusive. No, no, he was kind, entrepreneurial, successful, and... And then very shortly, I think there are two phases. One is mild abuse and one is acute abuse. Mine was um, in the mild phase for some time. It was particular because he went very quickly into acute abuse, like very, very fast. So the first thing, how to escape? The first thing is to recognize it. And this might sound like a cliche, but recognizing it is actually very difficult. For one mechanism, and this mechanism is called emotional dependency. So what is emotional dependency is a mechanism where that they, and this is something that my lawyer actually told me the first time I met her, and I've been, I had the, the privilege to work with a lawyer that is a big expert of these dynamics. And she's like, but these people go where they see a fragility. And for example, this person, my, my abuser, uh, saw someone that really needed to be perceived as successful and uh, one can investigate in my childhood or adolescence why so but anyway is because they see someone that needs a sort of validation from others they see that they build a mechanism called emotional dependency which starts with offenses which starts with uh, well, no, threats are already the acute abuse phase. So when they start threatening, it's already acute. But they start with offenses. They start with comparisons with other people. Oh, my ex was so much better than you and this and that. So they build it. They really, really build it carefully. And uh, they, I cannot speak for all of them, but a very common pattern is that they know exactly what they're doing. And they build it. They build a situation in which you become essentially a slave to them in, uh, psychologically. That makes it very difficult to liberate yourself. In my case, uh, I liberate myself uh, because I fell in love with somebody else. <laughs> and uh, that was magic and uh, didn't last much, but they are a very dear friend now. But um, that was the moment of liberation. And I must say that thinking backwards, uh, well, liberating myself from domestic abuse because I fell for somebody else, uh, perhaps is not so self-asserting, but it's a way. The main thing is to recognize it is abuse and be able, there might be a very long lag between recognition and action. I called the police uh, over five months after he became actively dangerous. Some people never call it. So I wish I had a guideline to how, but the main step is recognition and find in a way, some people find it in family relations, some people find it in the need to protect somebody. And I'm speaking of the mothers I know that escaped a violent uh, partner, uh, not a mother, but uh, there are many. Some find, it in, uh, some find it in themselves, and that wasn't me. But recognizing emotional dependency and breaking it is the hardest part, but it's also the most important one. I wish there was an information 
booklet, but if there is one thing, is that recognizing and breaking dependency is the most important thing. Were you at the time that you were in the, that relationship, were you doing the work that you do now to liberate and support others? Or was that part of you coming to that work? Oh, no, I was already doing it. I only couldn't see that I was one of those. I started doing ICT for development during my master's. So, so we are talking 13 years ago. And my abusive relationship is not so many years ago. It's for, on 16th of July is four years of survival. That's the day when I call the police. Sylvia's experiences illuminate a lot about the dynamics of abusive relationships, dynamics which are prevalent at home, at work, or anywhere. Abusers identify vulnerability in prospective victims, create a need, and proceed to carefully construct and perpetuate uneven, exploitative power dynamics that allow them to violate their victims in increasingly egregious ways. This happens in personal relationships like the one Sylvia described, and it happens in workplace environments. We demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder we embark, invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Imagine you have a job and are dependent on that job for your livelihood and for the attainment of your personal and professional goals. Well, it's easy to see how a supervisor might exploit their position in return for sexual quid pro quos or might create a hostile work environment in which you feel you have no agency and no way out. And that's assuming that you, the person being abused, recognizes that what's happening is abuse. As Sylvia pointed out, it's hard to have perspective when we're in toxic situations. Just as she liberated herself by falling in love with someone else, 46% of women who are working in abusive workplace environments extricate themselves by finding a new job or switching to a different industry. And again, it can be harder to recognize abusive cultures or relationships when we're in them. We struggle to see things that are harmful as damaging, and we minimize and explain away destructive actions and attitudes so that after a while, abuse becomes normalized. Here's Liz again. We are beginning to hear more about these types of instances and athletic departments. And I say hear more about them because it's not that we're seeing more instances. It's that now we're hearing about these types of instances within the workplace. And so something that really continuously came up in the early work that I did on the experiences of women was the idea that these women were dealing with sexism, with sexual harassment, with discrimination since really the beginning of their career. And they had become so numb to it that they didn't even recognize it anymore. So we did a study and we were talking with women conference commissioners and there are very few women conference commissioners. And I was talking with one and I was asking her some very pointed questions about, have you ever experienced sexual harassment? Have you ever experienced sexism, discrimination, you know, kind of talk me through 
what it's been like to be a woman in a, in a very male dominated space. And she was very quick to say, nope, never. I've never experienced anything like that. And then started to tell me these stories that were sexual harassment, that were sexism, that were discrimination. And so I think what has been going on for longer than I've been doing this work is that women have been experiencing sexism. They've been experiencing sexual harassment, discrimination, but they are becoming so numb to it as if it's just part of their job. And so they think if I want to work in this industry, this is what I have to put up with. And I just recently finished data collection on a project where we talked to 21 women in the professional sport industry about their experiences with harassment on the job. And all 21 of them had experienced some sort of harassment. And I think there is a lot of rhetoric. And I think this is across workspaces. It's not specific to sport, but this idea that the really overt sexual harassment and sexism is going away and it's being replaced by microaggressions and benevolent sexism and really the I call it like a dull hum like you can always hear it you always know it's there but sometimes you can't put your finger on it that's what a lot of the research is saying and what we found in this project is that type of the microaggressions the benevolent sexism and and harassment was there for everyone the majority of the women had also experienced some sort of very traumatic, overt harassment or abuse. So we had women who discussed being physically abused by their colleagues. We had a woman who disclosed that she was raped by a colleague. And and so I went in, I think, optimistic about what we might find and how the landscape of sports and the intersection of sport and women's bodies and policing women's bodies and harassment and and all of this, I went in very optimistic that it was changing. And what we found is, is quite the opposite. If findings show that egregious, hostile, and violent acts have occurred and are occurring in various workplaces, what do we do? Well, for starters, any successful anti-harassment strategy has to involve early intervention because the data almost invariably shows that abuse escalates over time. If we want to make a dent in cultures of harassment, we can't wait to intervene until harassment becomes overt and or violent. We have to foster respectful workplace environments where everyone is invested in putting an end to everything from subtle sexism to overt abuse. We need to create a culture shift. Stephanie Gantman Kaplan, who asked me to call her Steph, is a labor and employment attorney and partner at Blank Rome. Steph was listed in the 2020 Philadelphia Business Journal as Best of the Bar Employment Litigation. Her professional expertise extends to all areas of labor and employment law, and she shared that in her work, she seeks to educate individuals at all levels of an organization about the importance of respect, beginning with things that might seem small or relatively insignificant. Many of the workplace conduct issues we see are these subtleties. We all know that there is egregious conduct that has occurred where people are assaulted and other horrible things have happened. But by and large, day to day, I think that conduct that is problematic in many workplaces are subtle, subtle things that, you know, a one-off comment is not as a matter of law sufficient to say something's discrimination or harassment, but it goes against the culture of respect you're trying to create. Right. And each of those are building blocks to creating the culture. So that's what I talk about, among many other topics. Let's talk about subtleties. 
I asked Steph what constituted a subtlety and how she might address this concept in one of her respectful workplace trainings. When I'm talking about those subtleties, I think using a real life example is helpful, right? I think that compliments are a very challenging area for people because people like to give people positive feedback. Some people are very perceptive, but compliments can be dangerous in the workplace if they're not kind of thought about appropriately. So when I'm doing trainings, I'll always talk about a compliment about someone's work performance is always appropriate. You did a great job on that presentation. You wrote an excellent brief, whatever the work-related, there there is never an inappropriate work-related compliment. But anything outside of work-related compliment can just get on that line, again, not of illegal conduct, but of of things that might not promote a respectful workplace, and it might not come from a bad place, right? But comments about physicality, you look great today, you look great in that dress, I love your haircut, could be perceived differently than the person who's stating a common intent. So I often will give examples about comments that have been made to me when I was pregnant with my daughter, you know, I was in the office every day working hard and a male partner who's a great guy who I have a great relationship down the hall says, you're looking great, big mama. And does a pregnant woman want to hear that they're big? Not particularly. Did it impact my relationship with this person? No. But if I had been a different recipient of that comment, it could have. And he meant only positive things. And so I talk about subtleties and comments and I'll use real life examples. And, you know, I saw you smiled and and people laugh. And I find that sometimes when you smile and have an emotional reaction to something, it also helps you remember, you know, oh, even that lawyer, someone called her big mama and she's five, three. So I better watch what I'm saying here. Well, and I love that what I smiled at was that you actually really stressed the point that I think is very important, which is the fact that like intent doesn't always have to determine impact. And I think that there is a misconception that like, well, in order to be damaging or harmful, like I have to have intended it. So as long as my heart's in the right place, then it's fine. But I think what you're pointing to is that actually it's, it's not just intent, it's impact that's important. And I, I love that. That's also very true to the law, that it is correct that it is not about intent. Intent is good and well, but it's not legally determinative either. And so it's it's impact of does the person feel that, you know, the comment was inappropriate, was was gauged towards a protected characteristic such as gender. And again, for me, the impact of that comment was now I have a great bit for my trainings that I can provide a real life example of a person I have a good relationship with who just was speaking off the cuff in the workplace. But for others, it it could have a different impact. As Steph pointed out, intent doesn't always determine impact. Sometimes a well-meaning remark can be hurtful. One helpful pointer we can utilize to attempt to ensure that our impact matches our intent is, as we're speaking to our colleagues, to think, what is my intent here and what is the impact I'm likely to have if I say this or do that? Being more intentional and empathetic can only have a positive impact on our lives and on the lives of others. And of course, we can use Steph's suggestion to confine our at-work compliments to work performance. If you're thinking that seems extreme, let's revisit the issue of impact. Here's Leora again. Even the most sort of minor versions, and I'm putting minor in quotes, (laughs) 
because you can't see me. <laughs> um, the most minor versions of harassment might be, oh, you look so nice in that dress. Oh, I love how that makes your legs look great hair. I love this new look on you, right? Sort of just the commenting on your appearance. The subtext of that is all you care about is what I look like. All you care about is the outside. You don't care about what I'm thinking, what I'm contributing, all the value that I'm bringing as a person. You've just eliminated that because you're focused exclusively on what I look like. And that is really disempowering. It's not just the person making the inappropriate comment or doing the harassing that is disempowering the person being harassed. I can't emphasize enough that sexual harassment and abuse proliferate because of bystanders and enablers. Sometimes the inaction of others is the most confusing, most painful part of sexual harassment because it makes those being mistreated feel as if they have nowhere to go and no one to turn to. Here's Liz again. A lot of the women who we spoke with said that their harassment took place in front of their colleagues and nobody said anything. It was actually really interesting listening to the women kind of wrestle with um, the way in which they were talking about their colleagues who had witnessed this harassment or abuse because they, they wanted to talk about them as if they were their friends. But then they also recognize that if someone was really their friend and really cared about them, they wouldn't allow them to be treated like this, right? And so they were really, I think, wrestling with not knowing how to feel about their colleagues who let them continuously be harassed and bullied and belittled and continuously did things. And, and oftentimes it was their colleagues who were doing, especially some of the microaggressions and the benevolent sexism. So they wanted to like them. They wanted to be their friends, but they also were recognizing all of the problematic things that they were doing. So what should bystanders do? How can we be allies to our colleagues, prevent ongoing harassment, and put an end to sexism? Anna shared that Right to Be teaches five distinct methods of bystander intervention. People don't know that there are tools that they can use to intervene. And there are so many reasons why people don't act because they might feel that they will be afraid that they will make things worse or that they can make a difference or that, I don't know, they might feel scared that the harassment will turn on them because of how they identify or the identities that they hold. So to respond to that, we use our methodology, the five Ds for bystander intervention that give people a lot of options to intervene in a safe way. So only one of them is a direct approach, but then four of them are actually quite indirect. But all of them are designed to support the person experiencing harassment while at the same time ensuring the safety of the bystanders. So the five Ds are uh, distract. So distract is taking an indirect approach to de-escalate the situation. And there are so many ways you can create distractions. So you can drop something on the floor and get between the two people. You can start the conversation with the person being harassed. Pretend that you know that person and say like, hey, how are you doing? Or pretend you're lost. So you can say something like, hey, can you give me directions to get to this place? And yeah, I think that's a really powerful way to intervene. And why, what is important there is that you should ignore the person 
harassing and engage directly with the person who is being harassed. So you don't have to talk about the situation. Instead, you can talk about something completely random. And the idea is to create this safe space for the person who is being harassed. Then we have delegate. And this means to find somebody else to get support. And that can be a person of authority. So if you are in an airplane, the flight attendant, if you are in a bar, maybe the barman, the waiter, but also it can be someone else. It can be just the person next to you who can help you, who might be in a better position to support that situation. And like the good thing about delegating is that you create this environment where multiple people are intervening. So it tends to, to create this like a safer environment for everyone. So delegate is also very useful. Document, which is basically documenting what is happening. It's very important that when you document a situation, you make sure that that documentation goes to the person who is being harassed so they can decide what they want to do with that. So we tell people not to publish that on social media because that can be very traumatic for the person. So just give that that documentation to the person and they can decide what they want to do. But documentation is, is very, very important because it can help. It can be like a, a tool that they can use to report that in the future. Then we have delays, uh, wait, waiting until the, the situation has to stop and asking the person if they're okay. So that's very powerful as well, because maybe at that moment you didn't know how to act. You, you froze and like maybe you knew about these tools, but still didn't feel safe to intervene. But just like reaching out to this person, you can really make a difference for the person who has been harassed by waiting and let them know or ask them if they're okay, ask them if they need something, if you can go with them somewhere, if they, if they need to call someone, and that can really make a difference. And then finally, we have direct, which is like our final option, because is there's like safety is like a big point around direct, because you don't want to de-escalate the situation and you want to assess your safety first. So direct is basically telling the people, or the person harassing that what they're doing is inappropriate. And I think what we recommend here is that you should try to keep it short, be firm and clear, say something like it's really inappropriate, you need to stop what you're doing, and then leave it at that. Like turn to the person who is being harassed and not engaging the person harassing because that's when situations can can escalate. The five Ds of bystander intervention, distract, delegate, document, delay, and direct, also work for online spaces as well as in-person interactions. They simply require slight modifications. For example, a bystander might distract an abuser with a GIF, or by changing the subject in a Facebook or Twitter feed, or documenting an instance of abuse by taking a screenshot of a hostile comment and emailing or DMing it to the person being harassed, along with an offer to provide evidence to the authorities if needed. And it's essential to be equipped to address online harassment because it is a major problem, both in personal and in professional spaces. In fact, 44% of internet users have experienced some form of online harassment. Here's Liz again. Something that a lot of women in our study talked about was how so much of the harassment that they received was actually online harassment. 
So it came in the form of email. It came in the form of messages on social media. It came in in a digital format because it's so hard to police. And so I think social media and, and the Internet give folks this ability to essentially be anonymous. They can create an email address and send one email from it, or they can create a social media account just to harass a single individual. And that's what some of the women in our project actually talked about is they they had, and, and I'll call them trolls, that was the language that the women were using, they had these trolls who, who were emailing them. Um, and if, you know, they were on maybe a news outlet about sport, they were emailing them afterward to comment on their hair, on their dress, on anything like that. And they were sending them messages on social media. They were criticizing them via social media. A lot of women talked about using channels like Slack um, and having people say inappropriate things on on Slack and creating this environment where they didn't treat the women like that to their face, but when they could operate in this virtual space that they were much more willing to say sexist things, to say derogatory things, to to use racial slurs and and things like that. And so I think it allows folks the opportunity to potentially say things that they wouldn't say in person because they can hide behind a computer screen or something like that, whether it is a computer screen and, and we know who they are or a computer screen and, and they've created an, an anonymous profile. But I, I think in some respects, you know, where things like physical abuse in the workplace have likely gone down because folks are working in a virtual space, other types of abuse have increased. Liz was alluding to the assumption that on-site, in-person workplace sexual harassment has gone down with the increase in remote work opportunities brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. I have to tell you that I shared her assumption until I spoke with Charlotte Burroughs, designated by President Biden as chair of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, on January 20, 2021. Chair Burroughs has served as a commissioner of the EEOC for multiple terms and previously served as associate deputy attorney general at the United States Department of Justice, as well as general counsel for civil and constitutional rights to Senator Edward M. Kennedy. According to Chair Burroughs, it is correct that online sexual harassment is a prevalent problem among American workers, but it hasn't reduced instances of in-person harassment. She spoke very candidly about how, contrary to what I assumed, remote work hasn't offered more safety, not psychologically and not physically. In fact, it would seem that the COVID-19 pandemic has increased the likelihood of harassment both online and in person. One of the things that I think somewhat optimistically people were hoping would happen is that if remote work meant no more harassment, right? Well, unfortunately, that is not the way it has worked. First of all, only about 23%, I believe, of the American workforce went to remote work. The other 77% was still showing up in the physical workplace. And we're talking about essential workers in, for the most part, and a lot of those on the front lines of dealing with the pandemic. But for those 23% who went, uh, I'll start with them, went remote. Well, what we found is that there's all sorts of ways to technologically harass someone. The issue that you raised earlier about people learning about their coworkers or their supervisors or supervisees' personal lives or suddenly they're seeing them. Maybe you have to broadcast from your bedroom 
Now you can put a background there, but what we found is that they're the harassment online and it, it's a little too early to be completely clear of what the picture is going to show, but that has become, or maybe it was always a thing, right? And if you think about some of the things that we see on the internet in our, just separate from our work lives, it's not surprising that people can be more shrill maybe than they were in person. Um, so the kinds of harassment we see, or let's say someone calling more often than totally unnecessarily doing a video call with their particularly attractive coworker for no reason, constantly, right? Or making comments about someone's bedroom or that sort of thing. We've had some reports of people having offensive things in their backgrounds, right? It's their home. Why can't I have, you know, my swastika or whatever in the picture when I'm talking to folks? And so it's not so easy as to say, well, you're not in the workplace. Clearly no harassment is happening. The other thing that is the reality, let's go to that 70 plus percent who are still in the workforce. There are fewer witnesses in some ways of what's happening. And while the economy has picked up, which is great, but at the time, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of layoffs and a lot of fear about, was I going to be the one who gets laid off? And a lot of uncertainty. And so what that means is people are terrified of retaliation even more than usual. So we had at the one instance, if there's uh, harassment going on, there are fewer witnesses. So you really are, as the person who experiences, thinking there's no one that's going to back me up if I report this. And also more fear about losing your job. As sad as it is to say, People's fear that they will experience retribution or retaliation if they speak up when they've faced or are facing sexual harassment isn't baseless. According to NBC News, more than 7 out of 10 people who reported sexual harassment at work experienced some form of retaliation afterward. And this retaliation included responses such as judgment and or social ostracization, demotion, and firing. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. 
Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu ddp to learn more. Inspired eLearning reports that 46% of employees who experience sexual harassment fear retaliation if they speak up, and that among those who have reported sexual harassment, 95% of their harassers went unpunished. It's obvious that coming forward can become its own traumatizing experience on top of the already traumatizing experience or series of experiences of having been harassed and or abused. There's a lot of victim blaming and shaming and a lot of defending abusers that allows cultures of abuse to continue. Here's Liz again. We do know the way in which victims are treated when they do go through that whole process, right? So the victim blaming that comes not only from perhaps those in positions of power within athletic departments or law enforcement, um, but then the public and, and the way that women are treated through the trial and having to relive all of those experiences over and over again and having your past called into question. And it's interesting to think about So someone comes to you and they say that they were robbed. We don't immediately start asking them, well, what were you wearing? Where were you walking? Right. We believe them and we start asking the questions about the person who did this. Where were you? How can we catch them? You know, what were they wearing? Did they say anything? Right. So we very much focus on helping them and we believe them. And so I think that instances of sexual violence and and domestic abuse, especially involving high profile male athletes, are one of the only crimes 
where we first investigate the victim to see how credible she is. And it's maddening to hear the same thing over and over and over and over again. And to hear that in some instances that dozens of people knew and dozens of people in high profile positions knew and did nothing about it and continued to hire them and continued to, you know, in the case of Larry Nasser, bring him with on international trips and allowed him to represent our country and do all these things knowing what they knew about him. And so we we constantly give men a pass on their problematic behavior, on their abusive behavior, and allow them to continue. For the record, I want to acknowledge that it's not only men who are abusive. In fact, Crystal Harold, an associate professor in human resource management and a Paul Anderson research fellow at Temple University School of Business, has specifically studied abusive female supervision. Prior to pursuing her current career path, Crystal worked as a strategic human resources consultant for numerous governmental agencies, including the Air Force, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and the Department of the Interior. Along with fellow researchers, she conducted a study in which they examined the conditions and impacts of abusive female supervision. Although this particular study was looking at all forms of harassment by female supervisors and not specific to sexual harassment, I'd like to share some of what they found because it highlights that women can also abuse their power in the workplace, while at the same time revealing the deeply sexualized double standards that ensure that women and men are perceived differently, even in cases where women are perpetrators. But before getting into that, let's look at what Crystal's team was studying and some of the questions they set out to answer. We were most interested in how reactions to the supervisor affected ratings of that supervisor. So we were interested in follower perceptions. So typically in the abusive leadership uh, literature, we study how it affects the follower. So you know, we tend to find that there's a whole host of negative attitudinal, cognitive, behavioral, health-related outcomes when you're subject to abusive supervision. But there's less about what is the effect on the supervisor? How does this affect how we look at these abusive supervisors? And so that was really, we wanted to kind of flip the script a little bit and look at how it is followers react to these individuals who are engaging these behaviors. I'm curious too, does the length of the abuse determine the impact of the abuse? Yeah, and that would be a fascinating question to ask because you could see it going both ways. You could see the reactions being worse, but you could also see somebody almost becoming numb to it, right? And like, this is the way that it is. The questions that we asked were with respect to how frequently do they engage in that? But this was a snapshot, you know, this was a one-time study and an experimental manipulation. So, yeah, we don't know whether these are individuals who have been sustaining abuse for months or, or years from the same individual. In this study of abusive female supervisors, the researchers did indeed flip the script by looking at how abusive supervision impacted the career success of the supervisors themselves. And they also flipped the script by looking at abusive women, which I think is really important if we want to move towards greater workplace equity. We have to examine leaders of all identities and scrutinize power dynamics in order to reframe our understanding of leadership for individuals of every gender. I asked Crystal how much abusive supervisors care about their impact on those they're abusing. 
I think there's a couple of different answers to that question. The first being that, you know, are leaders even aware that what they're doing is not being well received by their followers? And so there is some research kind of looking at trickle down effects. So that if my supervisor is abusive to me, then I'm going to be more abusive to the people below me. And so it could be that these individuals just feel that this is the way that you're supposed to lead, or they could not be aware of the extent to which it's being perceived or felt by their followers, or just feel like, you know, it, it's not that big of a deal. I didn't actually do anything damaging to my followers. The second is, is do they care? I think it would really depend on the performance management system, right? If I'm a supervisor and I don't have a 360 degree feedback process that gives my followers the opportunity to have voice in my evaluation, then maybe I don't care. Maybe if I feel that the way I'm behaving is effective, and I'm going to meet, you know, whatever production or performance goals are being set for me, it really doesn't matter to me what it takes to get there. Crystal makes a critical point. If there are no negative ramifications, or worse yet, if there are positive rewards for abusive supervision, abusers are emboldened to continue. This means that workplaces must be invested in incentivizing healthy, respectful, empowering, empathetic leadership and dismantling the opposite. Having said that, one problem Crystal came across in studying women leaders was that conceptions about women's agency and competence have been so polluted by misogyny that even when women were the abusers, their followers assume that the impact of these female supervisors' abuse was far less than if these women had been men, and they maintain that abusive women leaders didn't bear the same responsibility as abusive men. We didn't talk about the attributions blame um, component of the study, and I think that this really is relevant to that, that even the women who engaged in abusive supervision were seen as even less typical leaders than men and were ultimately rated less effectively. They were also rated as less to blame for that abuse. And so initially, we're like, well, that's a good news story, right? And then we kind of took a step back and we're like, wait a second, the followers aren't even giving that individual agency over their own abuse. They're sort of making the attribution that no, like maybe their boss is making them behave this way, or it's something outside of their control that even in engaging in this bad behavior, my followers can't accept that I am indeed doing this of my own free will. Issues of blame, agency, and responsibility are complicated. But I think that if we remember that the problem of abuse is a problem of power, it becomes easier to engage in meaningful interventions. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, Myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com 
backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook, too. Happy learning. I asked Leora about women abusers. Sure, that can absolutely happen, particularly as women move into positions of power. They can absolutely be the harassers. It tends to not happen as much, probably in part because women are not in the positions of power nearly as often, right? So if we're talking about harassment as about power and harassment being a tool of power, then those who are in the lower rungs in the hierarchy often are are the victims more. But it can certainly happen when women to other women, women to men, men to other men. The Supreme Court has made clear that harassment is not limited to heterosexual harassment. There is same-sex harassment, and it doesn't even have to be sexual in that it doesn't have to be about attraction. It's not about sex. It's about using sex as a tool to keep someone out of power. Yes, sexual harassment is a mechanism for divesting people of their power. So is silence. Everyone I spoke with who experienced sexual harassment told me that silence was part of the mechanism that allowed the abuse to continue. They said that telling their story was the beginning of their liberation. And while telling their stories is critical for survivors themselves, it also creates a culture shift wherein other people stop enabling abusers and start to empathize with those who have been abused. Here's Stephanie Voigt again. First time I shared my whole story was probably to my husband now, who was at the time my boyfriend. and. I'm talking about this story that I never shared with anybody of my boss forcing me and threatening me uh, to have sex with him. Yeah, we were we were on his couch. I felt so free afterwards. Up to that moment, I had been kind of dropping little tidbits like, hey, you know, this thing happened to me. But I never really actually unloaded the whole thing from start to finish because I couldn't, I wasn't there. And yeah, the first time I unloaded the whole thing from start to finish, oh, I, the weight of it was taken from me. It was freeing, just so freeing to, to share it. And every time it continues to be more and more freeing in a way that's so transformative. Um, yeah, speaking up is definitely the cure for... <laughs> sexual violence if you're dealing with it. Yeah. Speaking up to anybody is a a good cure. Thank you so much. And did anything ever happen to that boss? Like, do you know what happened to that boss or? It's funny. You should ask. I think back in early December, I posted on LinkedIn, this poem that I had written, which was the poem that kind of shifted my mindset into like where I really started to realize like, oh, I'm a survivor. I I really got real with myself. I really accepted it. It was a very raw, very raw poem. I posted it on Medium and then I shared it on LinkedIn. And I have never posted anything about this on LinkedIn to, you know, my thousands of finance (laughs) business contacts. And within 12 hours, my company had, the, the company I was at at the time had picked it up. And they actually, they have a a department there as of the last couple of years that's investigating these kinds of matters. 
that department investigated it and they got back to me and said that they learned who it was and took disciplinary action. So that person is no longer at the company, which <laughs> 10, 12, what is it? Maybe 13 years after it happened. But I, I think that was that was a really valuable message for me because I never would have thought I, I had tried to go the legal route and statute. Of, I was hit running up against statute of limitations and just all kinds of issues from no longer being an employee. And so just sharing it publicly actually got I had no intention of that happening at all. But sharing it publicly publicly got the word out in such a way and into the right hands that action was taken. And, and I actually think the company was really happy too, because they were at a time now where maybe they don't want people like that working for them. In the open access book, COVID-19 from the margins, pandemic invisibilities, policies and resistance in the datafied society, which Sylvia Massiero co-edited, she shared her story anonymously. But in our interview, Sylvia disclosed her identity and said we need to stop silencing survivors because it's essential for them to tell their stories and essential for others to listen. Well, I can disclose it now because it's been made public before, but there is an anonymous chapter in our book, COVID-19 from the margins, which is called Silent Silencing. And for uh, uh, reasons of a court case going on at that time, I, it had to be anonymous. <laughs> and it's a chapter that speaks about how domestic violence talk is normally silenced, but not silenced as in, you shouldn't say that, but silenced in a polite way. Like That's why I call it silent silencing. So it's in a polite way, like, yeah, but, you know, people are not really comfortable hearing that. Like, maybe let's talk about something else. So that's one thing that happens a lot. And that leads to, and here I refer to the colleagues that do instead quantitative work. For example, in that chapter, I cite some very clear statistics that speak about COVID-19 and its impact on domestic violence. So in that chapter, I essentially say, attention, that silencing tends to be Sneaky is more like, oh, I'm really sorry for what you went through, but you know, people don't like hearing that. And so that's one thing. And the other thing is this cannot not impact your work as researcher. So it definitely impacted me as a teacher and mentee, but as a researcher, it gives you a dimension of things. I mean, I always knew there was domestic violence. It only hadn't happened to me. It gives you a different eye. And uh, one thing that I say in my blog that is still anonymous and one day will come out with the name of Silvia Maziero is that when you listen to the story of a survivor, you become yourself a survivor. And I think you, in that way, have a sort of responsibility, like I'm alive for some fortunate circumstance, but I'm alive. And I sort of feel a big responsibility to tell my story and the story of the many that didn't survive the violence of their abusers. And here I want to make a final note uh, um, on this point and say is not only women or self-identifying as women that didn't survive their abusers. Domestic abuse is a huge problem and uh, it shouldn't be only examined under gender lines. Yeah, I think as survivors, we have uh, different people live it differently. I feel a big responsibility to tell. And uh, I'm delighted that after many years, I can now say it with my face and with my voice after being under pseudonyms for a very long time. 
The importance of survivor stories cannot be overemphasized. It is critical to listen to those impacted by abuse, not just so we can hear what happened, but so that we can listen between the lines and begin to take the necessary actions to prevent these kinds of abuses from continuing to happen. Here's Anna again. We need to educate people. And I think that we can do that by sharing the impacts of this problem that maybe when you experience harassment, well, that will impact your life in different ways. You might decide not to take a job that required to be there at night because you don't want to take public transportation at night or that you don't want to walk down a specific street because you are afraid that something will happen or like just like that how that will impact the quality of your life and the interaction with your community because we want to live in a world where you can I don't know be friendly with people so if someone says something I don't know in the subway or like if someone says good morning and you don't know what kind of like the ton of that good morning like you want to be able to feel comfortable and confident saying good morning back without feeling or assuming that is going to be like an invitation to to something worse or like that is responding to something that makes you feel uncomfortable. So I think that telling people about those consequences of harassment, like the social and financial aspects, uh, how it limits our mobility, how we can make decisions to avoid that harassment, that will help people to understand the impact of this problem and how we should focus on changing that those kind of behaviors, not judging the person who, who received that harassment, but f- focusing on how we change that, that culture and how we create that shift culture. As far as culture shifts go, I want to acknowledge that although this episode and this podcast focus on educating adults, It's never too early to start educating people about the importance of respect and bodily autonomy. I think one of the hardest parts about all of this is how taboo it still is to talk about sexual violence, like talking about it even within my own family. And my family has changed so much over the course of my healing and being able to talk about it. But being able to talk about this without people being triggered and making it not a shameful thing to talk about or something like even saying the word sex can be, it's taboo in a lot of spaces. We want to heal the trauma. We need to be able to talk to the next generation about rape needs to be a topic of discussion that is easily spoken about and easily brought up. So I don't know, I might have the kind of kids that nobody wants to to have their kids (laughs) around, but they're going to be really supportive of anyone in their life who is experiencing any sort of abuse or oppression or yeah, misuse of power for sure. Stephanie was pregnant at the time of our interview, envisioning the conversations she'd have with her soon-to-be-born child, conversations which, as a mother of three, Leora has been having for years. We talk about consent and bodily consent all the time with our kids, not necessarily in the context of sex, but in the context of don't hug your brother if he doesn't want to be hugged right now. Because that's about bodily integrity and autonomy. And so hopefully the idea is like, 
those concepts will then mature into more sophisticated understandings. But right now we're just in the planting seeds stage. Whether you're planting seeds at home or bringing conversations of consent into your workplace, it's important to talk about these issues. Hey listeners, Zach here. Dare Lisa and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Here's Steph Gantman Kaplan again. It's important that the all-employee trainings, that everyone hears the messages of what's against the law, what's against company policy, what is the culture of respect we're trying to create. Because if you just target a certain group, such as women, of course, it's not going to be effective. The whole population needs to hear the message. So that's sort of the baseline. And we often also do targeted management training because the role is a little different if you're in a management executive supervisor function, right? You're to be setting the example. You're to be calling out conduct you hear that's not appropriate. And to the extent an issue is raised to you, you have an obligation to deal with it because as the manager, your knowledge is company knowledge from a, from a legal standpoint. And that's a really important critical message. We're back to power dynamics. So while every person within an organization has to understand their rights and their responsibilities and ought to feel empowered enough to advocate for themselves and others, those within leadership should be expected to utilize their power and privilege to create respectful, equitable, safe, and supportive environments. As for how to do that, Chair Burroughs gave a comprehensive overview of the problem of sexual harassment, and she shared with me the process of implementing the systemic changes that are required to eradicate workplace sexual harassment, not only through reactive intervention, but with proactive prevention as well. Ultimately, harassment, and not just sexual harassment, but on all bases, is about abuse of power, and it's about the culture in which that abuse of power takes place. And so one of the things that we did as a commission, and this is some years ago now, uh, back in 2015, was to one of my predecessors, uh, then chair Jenny Yang, created a bipartisan task force to look at how to prevent harassment across the board and put together a task force led by two of my former colleagues, one Republican, one Democrat. And they took about 18 months bringing in experts from across the board. We had academics and social scientists and civil rights groups and members of the employment community and defense counsel and plaintiffs counsel, everyone who had some expertise. And there were over the course of this really just digging in how we understand what this problem is and it's off the charts 
in American workplaces, we need to get in front of it. How do we prevent? And out of that came a really wonderful report from the co-chairs of that task force, which I commend to all of you. It's longer. So we also have a short Cliff Notes version. Both are on our website. And the Cliff Notes version is called Promising Practices to prevent harassment. But one of the things that came out of that was it's all about culture. And it boils down to it's really incumbent on employers to get in front of this. And I think across the board, particularly after the Me Too movement went viral, employers get that. They get how important that is to their employees, to their bottom line, to their brand. And so what we wanted to do is make sure they had the tools to know how to do it. If I were to just bring it down to two things, it comes down to first, you got a message from the top. These are our values. These are our corporate values. There will be consequences if you harass. And that needs to be right from the CEO, right from the head of the organization, whoever that is. And then the top leaders have to message that and make it clear and treat it like anything else that's important to the bottom line, important to profit or loss. So that's the first thing, big picture leadership from the top. The second is we all know that the action in most organizations, in most companies, not the head necessarily of the organization. I certainly know that about EUC. I'm not, I'm not all the action. I'm just a piece of it. The real action is with everybody else, right? And so the way you get it to stick after you've messaged it and said it, which is exactly what companies are used to doing on everything else that they, you know, hey, we're making cars. Okay, here's how we do it. Whatever it is that their business is, you treat it the same, which means you go to your mid-level managers who make sure that everything gets done and you explain to them in very clear terms, you give them the right training, not about the law, because let's face it, everyone's bored to tears by that, but about practical, like, here's what you do. We don't, you heard the CEO, you heard the head of the organization. We don't allow this. So what does that mean? And then you tell them what to do when someone comes in with a report, right? You arm them in the training. Here's who you reported to. Here's how you proceed. You keep it confidential as needed to the extent possible, but you make sure there's a valid investigation. You protect that. And then you follow up to make sure there's no retaliation. Here's how you do that. Here's the steps so that you don't put the manager in the position of someone comes in. That's a stressful moment. Let's face it. Someone comes in and says, you know, I was harassed. This person who may be a trusted person, a known person to you, grabbed me or whatever else horrible, unlawful thing they might have done, you know already what to do so that in that moment of stress, you're not making it up on the fly because that's not fair to your managers and it's not likely to get you the right result. They're already armed. So they have, you know, a calm checklist. This is what to do. And you make sure after you tell them, here's how you're empowered to handle that situation well, so you don't have to make it up on the fly. You also make sure they know they're held accountable. Because one of the things that gets us in the culture off, that gets things wrong, is if you do make that report, and most people are well-meaning, they don't want harassment in the workplace, but maybe you go to that manager and you tell the manager what happened, and the manager is thinking, this is serious, something needs to be done, but what if I get punished for reporting it up? If the manager has to ask that question, has to wonder the answer to that, then you really are probably in trouble. 
So you as an employer really want to make sure before that moment comes that that manager knows the answer to the question. And the answer had better be, I'm not the problem unless I don't report it. As long as I report it, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And the only way I get in trouble is if I sweep this under the rug. Then you get an organizational culture where the right thing happens, people are comfortable, and you can proceed in a way that is reasonable and protects the organization. And fortunately, the law points in the same direction as those concerns as well. So that the things that you would do practically are also the things that the law tries to incentivize you to do. And that those are the things that we have really, really leaned into at the EEOC is how to help employers get it right. People basically know this is a problem, but so what do I do? And it really, it's about the culture. The last thing I'll say about that is harassment when it happens and it continues is in part about what happens with everyone else who's not the harasser and not the target of the harassment, but the people around it. Because one of the things that our task force found is that that poisons the atmosphere for everyone else if it goes on. And then you have other people in the workforce maybe starting to put their resume together. I want to get out of here, right? I don't want to be next or I'm just uncomfortable And one of the things that the best training does is to try and empower those people to say, hey, here's how you as a bystander, if you will, don't have to stand by, but you can be supportive without necessarily putting your neck on the line because those people who are abusing power ultimately are taking advantage. They're counting on everybody else to be silent. They're counting on everyone else to be too afraid to stand up. Whether or not we've been involved in abusive or harassment-prevalent cultures in the past, I hope that from this moment forward, all of us can take an active role in dismantling unhealthy and abusive power dynamics. Let's learn from the stories of survivors and do what we can to move from secrecy and shame to empowerment and empathy. Let's refuse to stand by and stand up for one another instead. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast centers around topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion at work and is brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like us, and take a few minutes to leave a positive review, which helps spread the word about what we're up to. And if you'd like to ask us a question about this episode, any previous episode, or anything having to do with diversity, especially in the workplace, please call 844-888-8148 and leave a message with your question or visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can ask us a question, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out about our DEI services. Thank you to this episode's guests. Leora Eisenstadt, Armando X. Estrada, Axe, Stephanie Voigt, 
Liz Taylor, Anna Velasquez, Sylvia Masiero, Steph Gantman-Kaplan, Chair Charlotte Burroughs, and Crystal Harold, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Dara Lee Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.